Well, let's pray before we open the word this morning and hear the word of God. Our Father, we are thankful that you are so very good to your people. We're reminded of that as we are gathered in your presence this morning and we have the gift of your word and that we have the gift of your spirit. That there is not one place we have to gather that you are somehow there, but as we sit in our homes and as we sit in our apartments and as some of us stand here in the sanctuary, that you are present with all of us. Because your spirit goes as the wind goes, blows where it desires. You are a God who is always present with your people. You, our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. What a wonderful promise that is this morning. Would you minister to us by your word and by your spirit? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. This is the holy and errant word of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was told this week won't name the child, but there was a child, and there are only so many that can be in my home right now, and a child said to me, you know, you would be pretty handsome with hair. Uh, I guess my balding is a sign of the fact that I am middle-aged. I don't tend to think that I'm middle-aged, uh, but I've noticed recently when I go to speak at a conference or when someone asked me to do a video shoot for them, uh, I've been asked more regularly recently the same question. They will say, well, give some advice to young pastors, would you? I think, I'm a young pastor. I don't feel like I'm an old pastor, and I'm not. But maybe it's because I've reached that kind of middle age status. 
When I think about advice to young pastors, there are different things that go through my head, and one of them that always goes through my head, and that I will often tell younger men in the ministry, is to remember that everyone is suffering. Everyone's suffering. Everyone is going through trials. Everyone is hurting. Some carry it better than others. Some carry it worse than others. Some have, on par with everything else, pretty small struggles. And others have quite huge struggles. Some have trials that are the result of their own folly and Others have trials that are the result of circumstances. Some, it's the fallout from their sin. But for all, it's a result of the fall. Everyone is hurting. Everyone is experiencing some trial. Trials are a part of life. They just are. They sound macabre, but it's true. I want us to see this morning from this passage that there is hope in the midst of trials for the Christian, and in particular, according to a Christian perspective. So, three points this morning. First, often our trial, out of trial, our Savior brings forth fruit. So, first, often out of trial, our Savior brings forth fruit. Second, I want us to see that trials are no place for an indistinct Savior. And finally, we serve a Savior whose mercy is always more, always more. First, often our out of trial, our Savior brings forth fruit. Matthew tells us here at the beginning of this passage that Jesus and his disciples have gone off. So they've gone to a new area. They've gone to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You'll remember that they had tried to get away earlier, but the crowd had chased them around the Sea of Galilee and had met them where they were going. And so now, because they couldn't get away there, they have gone even further to get away. And it appears that They've withdrawn to Tyre and Sidon, which was about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, that they retired there so that they could have some rest. And so, it is shocking to Matthew, and it's supposed to be shocking to the reader as Matthew uses these words in verse 22, and behold, and behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out. She wasn't supposed to come out to Jesus from a human perspective. She's a surprise. And here you have this Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter crying out as she follows Jesus and his disciples. She isn't meek. She isn't in any way relenting. She just keeps chasing after them and asking for mercy for her daughter. The disciples, they are absolutely annoyed. In their mind, they are saying, enough already. Stop coming after us. Stop pursuing us. Stop asking for this. Didn't we just buy you Legos? You have Legos to play with. 
Didn't we just get a puzzle at the beginning of this week knowing we were going to be on lockdown so you had something to do? I've had it up to here. They're tired. She's wearing them out. And so they begin begging Jesus to just just send her away. Now, it could be that the disciples want Jesus to heal her daughter and then send her away, or it could be that the disciples just want Jesus to to do away with her, just to get, get her away. They're fed up with her. They're tired of her. They're annoyed. They've reached their limit with her, but not Jesus. In a video this week, I spoke to you about that great Reformation principle of out of darkness, light, or after darkness, light. Elder Peter Lucas, one of our elders, Peter Lucas, told me an email. He said, ah, you stole that. I was going to send that out in my elder devotional this upcoming week. And so I feel pretty good thinking we were both thinking about the same thing. I feel like if Peter Lucas was thinking about it, then I'm on the right track. It's a good thing to think about. After darkness, light. Because the Lord often chooses to work this way. After darkness comes light. After death, life. After winter, spring. This woman has been experiencing darkness, severe suffering. She is going through a severe trial, and she cries out to Jesus, Have mercy on me. Now, why does she cry out, Have mercy on me? It's not mercy on herself that she wants. It's, it's on her daughter. It's her daughter's affliction, but her daughter's affliction has become her pain. And you know this, it is often worse for the loved one of the sufferer than it is for the sufferer themselves. And so she says to Jesus, have mercy on me, because her her daughter is demon-possessed. What's that demon doing to her? We don't know. If you think about the rest of the accounts in the Gospels of demon possession, it could have been that her daughter was mute. It could have been that her daughter was blind. It could have been that her daughter went into a kind of temporary insanity. It could have been worse. She could be like that demoniac man that we meet that was filled with a legion of demons where he is doing bodily harm to himself or throwing her down with seizures, or throwing her into fire, as some of these demons did to people in the Gospels. It is darkness. And yet, the Lord's at work. He's always at work. If this woman had not experienced this dark time with her daughter, would she have looked to Christ in faith in this moment? Would she have come to Him? Times of trial tend to breed faith. Out of darkness, light. This is my great prayer in the midst of all of this that we're enduring. 
I hope it's your great prayer that out of darkness would come light. My friends, affliction is not the worst of all things. Being left to ourselves is. I want to say this with all care, and I want to be very careful in saying this. I think as a pastor of a previous generation once said, he said this, he said, sickness is the soul's advisor. Sickness is the soul's advisor. It is, it tells us that we aren't sovereign, that I'm not all-powerful, that I'm finite, that I am weak, that I am frail. And it drives me to look outside of myself to another, just like has happened with this Canaanite woman. Now, sickness itself is not positive. We would never call evil good or good evil, but we can say and we do know that the Lord works in the midst of evil for good, to bring about good. He works in darkness to bring forth light. Augustine once said, God could in no way permit the kind of evil out of which he could not bring good. And you need but look to the cross to understand that in its full-orbed way. When a physician puts a, a patient under that surgical knife, initially there's pain, it's real pain. It appears that it's harm, and it is harm, but, it, but it's all aimed at that person's greater health. This week, there were children sitting at home and overwhelmed by the schoolwork and crying out with tears, I don't want to do math, it is too hard, it's too difficult. I know some of you kids did that this week. And no doubt you said, it would be much better for my soul and much better for my person if I could just play or just watch a movie or just play a video game. And every kid says amen. Yet every mom is looking over that kid's shoulder and telling them they must do their math. Keep at it. A little suffering in the moment leads to a lifetime of greater health. I don't welcome the coronavirus any more than this mother of the Canaanite woman welcomed these demons, but the Lord used it for her good. And could it be that a people who have celebrated individual expression could be awakened to consider others? Could it be that a people who have sought to conquer death with diet and medicine and surgery are awakened to their finitude? Could it be that a people who are dominated by the material are awakened to the spiritual? Could it be that a people who have prided themselves on independence are awakened to dependence? Could it be? people who love control 
are awakened to the necessity of faith. I hope, even more, I believe it can be. And I pray you're praying that with me. Or are we like the disciples, just hoping this annoyance will end? If so, it's short-sighted. We hope it ends, but pray that the Lord works in this. If you aren't viewing it in this way, if you aren't praying to that end, it's sub-Christian. We pray, Lord, from this darkness, shine your light. After darkness, light. Often out of trial comes fruit. Second, let us see that trials are no place for an indistinct Savior. This Canaanite woman, she knows what she needs. She knows whom she needs. She kept crying out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She knew that he was her only hope. And so she was absolutely persistent. She is like that persistent widow that Jesus speaks about in the parable that just kept going after the judge and just would not let him go and kept coming to his door day after day. And so she is doing the same with Jesus. Because faith continues to fight even when faced with obstacles, especially when it's faced with obstacles. And notice... But this is not a nondescript plea. She, she calls him Lord. Now, that could be just a term of respect, but I think in the context here she means much more than that because she goes on to call him son of David. She has some semblance that he's the promised Messiah, that he's the Christ to come this is not an indistinct Savior and an indistinct faith. She knows He is what her daughter needs. And so she cries out to Him. Times of crisis tend to bring out the meaninglessness of non-defined, nondescript, nebulous saviors. A vapid faith and a nebulous Savior is fine when life is sailing along, but when trial comes, there is no substance there. There's nothing to lean into. There's nothing to lean upon. There's nothing to hope in. There's no comfort. There's no refuge. This past week... A bunch of Hollywood actors and musicians did a kind of montage together. They were all in their own kind of self-isolation in their different homes, and they put together a montage of John Lennon's Imagine. I think they did it with the best of intentions. I think it's, uh, it was unseemly for seeing different Christians kind of jump on them and tear them to pieces. Ah, they had the best of intentions. They were doing it from their worldview. Their heart was in the right place. But it was the wrong thing. It was vapid. 
There's no hope there. There's no help there. There's no comfort there. There's nothing there. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That's what you want. You want people just living for today? I doubt anyone has ever asked for this song to be sung around their their hospital bed. I can almost guarantee that no one has asked this song to be sung upon their deathbed because it's vapid. There's, There's nothing there. If they were actually going through trial, this wouldn't be the song that they would sing. They were a group of Christians in Nashville that decided to do their own montage this week, and they put together from their places of isolation montage of that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, that's a song that's born out of trial. That's a song that's meant for trial. Spafford, who wrote that hymn, New Trial, in 1871, the great Chicago fire destroyed his business and destroyed his property, but even worse, it, it killed his four-year-old son. And two years later, Spafford decides that he is going to go across the Atlantic and go to Europe on holiday, as they called it back then, or on vacation today with his wife and his four daughters. But all of a sudden, there was a zoning issue. as a rebuilding in Chicago, and so he had to stay in Chicago. But he went ahead and he sent his wife and his daughters, and he said he would catch the steamer the next week or the week after, and he would join them there. And as that ship went across the Atlantic Ocean just two years after he lost his son, that ship ran into another ship, and it went down. His wife will survive, and she will send a telegram to her husband in Chicago. And the telegram read, saved alone. All four of his daughters drowned. A son killed by fire, four daughters drowned by water. And it's as he is then crossing the ocean to go and be with his wife, and they are sailing by this part of the ocean where he has lost his four daughters, that he writes, And peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well 
It is well with my soul. The Canaanite woman would not have been comforted by imagining that there is no heaven and no hell and everybody just living for today. She needed a true Savior. And so she looks to him in faith. Have mercy on me, she cries. It's faith. She didn't plead for reward, but mercy. She didn't plead her works, but her need. She knows her insufficiency, and she knows his supersufficiency. Have mercy on me, Jesus. He's a very distinct Savior. But her trial is not over. No, Jesus is now going to take her through a, a few more moments of darkness to test her faith, not because he didn't know the validity of her faith or the quality of it, but for her good. In that testing, there's refinement, and, and she will rise to each occasion in this passage. Four times she rises to the occasion. At first, verse 23, Jesus does not answer her cry. The silence wasn't aimed at, at demolishing her faith, but rather inflaming her faith. And it does. She keeps crying out. The second is what we've already mentioned, that the disciples want to see her put away. They, they want her to be sent off. And no doubt they said that to her, go away, woman. But she didn't back away. She kept after him. Her faith persisted. Third, Jesus says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And she's not Israel. She's a Canaanite. And yet, she continues to plead. She falls on her knees before him in an act of worship. And her faith persists. And finally, Jesus calls her a dog, which we'll return to in verse 26. And yet she continues to plead with him in faith. Her faith perseveres in the midst of the darkness. And it's refined. It's strengthened. It's, it's bolstered. She just keeps believing that's faith worthy of imitation. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. And she knows who Jesus is. She, she can't believe unless there's some knowledge there. As Paul will say in Romans, they'll say, well, how can they believe unless they have heard? No, they, they must hear. There must be some knowledge. Now, the knowledge that she has is testimonial. People have told her about this Jesus. And so it's a knowledge that is rudimentary. It's a knowledge that is incomplete, and yet it is still true knowledge. 
She knows him to be the Savior. But by the end of this passage, she knows him to be her Savior. And there's all the difference there. She moves from a knowledge based upon testimony to a knowledge of experience. He's not a shadow. He's not nebulous. He's not indistinct. He is, by the end of this passage, more real to her than even her daughter who she is crying out for. There are many things in my life that I've changed my life about or my mind about over the years. Oh, I told you months ago, I used to think mustard sandwiches were a delicacy. I don't think that any longer. Oh, there are a lot of things I used to think I've changed my mind about, but not Christ, and not who He is. It doesn't change as you mature in knowledge and understanding. It just grows deeper. A conviction has grown deeper and deeper. Why? Because as you live as a Christian, as the days pass, and as the weeks pass, and as the months pass, and as the years pass, and as the decades pass, you come to experience His sovereign power more. You come to experience His mercy, His abundant grace more. You become to experience his beauty and his loveliness more. It just grows deeper and deeper. And that greater knowledge, it often comes through trial. I know whom I have believed. This woman says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, and she places her daughter in Jesus' hands. And those are good hands for them to be in. I was thinking this week that, you know, if we had a great possession, if you had a great possession and you wanted that great possession to be safeguarded, to be kept safe, you might place it in someone's hands. They might keep it for you. And you would know that it is safe and it's secure as long as that is a person of character. And the reality is, as long as that person of character has it, it is, it is safe and secure. They won't abuse it. They won't lose it. They won't mistreat it. They'll keep whatever that possession is. And yet, as true as that is, there won't actually be peace in me unless I have knowledge of their character. My thing can be safe because they're a person of character, and yet I can be a mess internally because there's doubt or there's insufficient knowledge about their character. And so every little thing begins to upset me. Ah, they, are they keeping it well? Are they safeguarding it? Here we have Christ. 
He's completely trustworthy. That is fact. But it isn't enough for it simply to be fact for the peace of my own soul. No knowledge of that fact must grow in me for me to know greater and greater measures of peace. So that means, dear Christian, that you may know Christ. You want to keep growing in your knowledge of Christ. You're not sufficient with where you're at. It's our lifelong pursuit to grow in our knowledge of Him, and the benefit of that is greater peace within And so we read our Bibles, we pray, we can't get enough of worshiping Him morning and evening. We gather our family together in family worship. It's our life's pursuit. And times of darkness allow you and I to pursue it even more. But let's focus on what is shown to be more in this passage. The final point, His mercy is always more. And that is our final point this morning. His mercy is always more. This passage is strange, isn't it? It doesn't take but reading through it at first glance to find it a little strange. You have Jesus insulting here a desperate woman that doesn't seem to fit with His character or what we know of Him. I was working on this sermon yesterday, and Grayson came in, and she was sitting there and looking over the, the text and looking over some of my notes, and I said something about this woman being a dog, and Grayson said to me, that's not appropriate to call somebody a dog. And I said, well, Jesus did. And she said, Jesus? And I said, yes, Jesus. And she said, well, I would have expected more from Jesus. You can expect more because it seems odd. It doesn't sound like him. Jesus almost always responded to cries for help with mercy. So what's happening here? What's he doing Well, it's a teaching moment for the disciples and for the woman that they might both understand the extent of His mercy. The disciples are going to learn a great deal about the type of people that God saves and is willing to save and calls to Himself. And this woman is having her faith tested so that she might delight even more in the abundance of the mercy that is being shown to her and being shown to her daughter. I can't be dogmatic about this, but I can hypothesize that when Jesus called her a dog, as he does here in this text, that his tone was not harsh, that it wasn't meant to be combative. You know, if I say something like, you're a scoundrel, I can say it one of two ways. I can say, you're a scoundrel. Or I can say... (laughs) You are a scoundrel. And it means two completely different things. And I would guess here that Jesus is saying to this woman, by his tone and by his manner, with a kind of sly smile on his face, you're a dog. 
understand this, you must understand the context, who she is. First of all, she's a woman. Now, we don't think a lot of that in 21st century America, but a woman at this time would have been considered less than a man. And it would have been inappropriate for a woman like this to approach a group of men and keep chasing after them and calling after them. You get a semblance of how low women were viewed in the New Testament world with the prayer that was prayed for centuries and is still today prayed by Orthodox conservative Jews every morning. It was this prayer and is this prayer. They recite this prayer, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who did not make me a woman, thanking God that they weren't made a woman. And then the second prayer that follows is another prayer of thanksgiving, and in that prayer, they thank God for not making them a Gentile. Here's a woman who is a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. A woman from Tyre and Sidon, as Matthew tells us. That region is in modern-day Lebanon. We think of that and think, well, that's not so far away from Jerusalem, 100 miles or so from Jerusalem. But for a Jew, that was the other end of the earth. Jerusalem was the holy city. Tyre and Sidon, those are the badlands. That's where wickedness is at. That's evil there. It is entire that Jezebel, that awful pagan ruler of the Old Testament during Elijah's time. That's where she ruled. And even more in the mind of a Jew of the first century would have been that it was the people of Tyre and Sidon that just a couple of decades earlier when the Maccabean revolt had started in Israel, when the Jews were trying to throw off the the Roman occupation, it was Tyre and Sidon along with the Ptolemies that came down and crushed that revolt. Their enemies. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says in his works that Tyre was, quote, notoriously our bitterest enemies. A woman, a Gentile, from Tyre, and Sidon, she is unclean beyond unclean. This would be like a person that has just visited Wuhan and Milan and Detroit and New York City and has shown up on your doorstep and has rung the doorbell and they haven't washed their hands for two weeks. Say unclean unclean. Matthew wants you to understand this. He places this account right after that of the Jewish Pharisees and the scribes coming to Jesus, the holiest men in all of Israel who were abstaining from unclean food and different regulations and rules. They were abstaining from unwashed hands. They were outwardly pure and every Jew would have looked at this woman and seen her as an example of what it means to be outwardly impure. Unclean. 
she would have been considered a dog. The filthiest of animals in the Jewish mind, those dogs that run around the cities and feed on trash. And she understood this. She shows knowledge of the fact that the Messiah was sent by God to the Jews. They were the covenant people, not her. She's unclean. That was the plan of redemption. First to the Jews. He was the Jewish Messiah. The prophecies are clear. Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Messiah was to come to the Jews first and save the Jews. This was the first task. They were the children of God. The priority in the moment, and she understood this. But the prophecies in the Old Testament were also clear that the Messiah was not only to save the Jewish people, but was also to be born into the world to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.6, Lord said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus must first minister to the Jewish people. That is his messianic priority, but it does not fulfill his messianic mission. He is to be a light to all peoples, Jew and Gentile. And the Canaanite woman had some sense of this. And Jesus tests her faith with his reply. She's ready. And she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It's a wonderfully beautiful response. She's got a very quick mind. She's ready. She responded not with self-pity or a sulking spirit, but with faith. She knew, she knew that Jesus Christ was her only recourse. She knew that He is what she needed for her daughter. She knew and she knew that the crumbs of Jesus' grace are sufficient. She knows to meet all of her needs, even the crumbs of his grace. His mercy is more. It's more than all her sin. It's more than all her darkness. It's more 
than sufficient for all her trial. It's more than sufficient for all her uncleanness. Even the crumbs. Hope you know that. I hope you know that His mercy is more than sufficient for you. He saves the most wretched of people. It is the sick who are in need of a physician. It's the lame who are in need of a healer. It's the hungry who need food. And it's the sinner who needs a Savior. There is no one so low that Christ will not stoop down and raise their head. His mercy is more. There is no untouchable in the view of God. There is no dark circumstance that He cannot shine light into. None. The dirty are made clean. The blasphemer's mouth is filled with praise. The sluggard becomes a laborer in the vineyard. The prostitute yields the members of her body to works of righteousness. In the midst of darkness, he shines light. There is nothing and there is no one beyond his mercy. Nothing and no one. He speaks this time to her with clear emotion in the Greek text in verse 28. He says, oh, woman, oh, woman. And he declares her daughter healed instantly. His mercy is more. The faith that seeks mercy, receives mercy. So to close, let me remind you of this from J.C. Ryle, who I thought nailed it and I couldn't do better. So just close with these words from him. His, if Christ's mercy is more, let us cleave to Christ more closely. Love Him more heartily. Live to Him more thoroughly. Copy Him more exactly. Confess Him more boldly. Follow Him more fully. Religion like this will always bring its own reward. Worldly people may laugh at it. Weak brethren may think it extreme, but it will wear well. At even time, it will bring us light. In sickness, it will bring us peace. In the world to come, it will give us a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, 
We're thankful that even in the midst of darkness, we know that you who are light of light are working and that you are accomplishing your purposes for the good of the church and for your glory. And we pray that we would be a people of faith, much like this Canaanite woman, seeking after you and pleading prayer, looking to you as the only sufficient answer, leaning into you and upon you, and yielding ourselves wholly to you. Oh, work light even in our own souls, we pray over these days. And would you work it in our world for your glory and your praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen.